coming to get you, Barbara. Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> I love it, though. Now me, I not only drink really, I really drink. We are Buzz on Movies. 31. 31. 31. 31. 31. 31. 31. 31. 31. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 31st episode of Buzzed On Movies. I'm Teddy. And I am Matt. And this week, we're going to be talking to you about a little movie that takes place on the 31st of October. This movie is known as Halloween. Shocking. Halloween, (laughs) the original, um, one of one of the greats of of horror, one of the originators of the slasher genre from 1978, John Carpenter's Halloween. And we'll also be discussing the sequel from 1981, Halloween 2, which is not directed by John Carpenter. Yeah. Uh Disappointingly. Um, so th- this is definitely one of the most iconic franchises in all of horror. Michael Myers and his mask and everything have become extremely um, familiar icons for those who watch horror movies. Yeah, and I, but, I think the music is probably the single most iconic song from a horror movie. Yes, absolutely. Um, Possible should- exception of Jaws, I guess, but... Yeah, the theme is is pretty easily recognizable. Um, most people will have at least heard it before, even if they don't know it's from Halloween. Uh, everyone loves to play it around Halloween time because it's spooky. It sets the mood really well. Um, and it perfectly fits the, the film that we're about to talk about. Um, the, the, the music, in fact, is one of the great strengths of this movie. And I think part of why it became such an instant hit and such a enduring uh, symbol of Halloween. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it, I think every part of it added up to make it that way, but yeah, the music was super, super key. It yeah. makes it very memorable. So, um, so we've talked before about <laughs> uh, black Christmas, which is um, also a very early slasher film from yes. 1974 um this one a few years later but um often it is given credit for really starting off the slasher genre obviously as we've seen there were ones that came before like black christmas but this is the one that always sticks in people's minds as like the first real big great slasher that everyone remembers yeah i mean i think that uh what I mean, Black Christmas obviously came first, but this one definitely like popularized the slasher genre in a way that Black Christmas didn't even. So it was just a different, it had a much bigger impact immediately on the yeah. landscape. Yeah, and um, this was shot, uh, directed, as we said, by John Carpenter. Um, he was mostly unknown at the time. He'd made like a little sci-fi movie called Dark Star. And, um, but this was definitely his first big hit um it was made was a hit (laughs) yeah it was huge this movie was made for around three hundred thousand dollars and it grossed between 60 and 70 million so enormous hit 
instantly skyrocketed his cred as a filmmaker. I mean, um, and that's in the 70s. Yeah. Just about how much money that was. Oh, man. Yeah. It, like <laughs> these days, the, like 60 to 70 million is a pretty decent box office these days for a movie that small. Um, back then, it would have been astronomical. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, this sort of took off his career. Um, he was sort of strong armed into the sequel of uh, Halloween. He uh, he didn't direct, but he wrote it and produced it. And um, he would have a minimal involvement with the franchise from there on. But he did go on to make quite a few classic iconic horror movies after this. Uh, but this is like where he really got his start. Yes. This is definitely his big. I mean, this has got to be his like claim to fame. This is like the big one. Absolutely. And he's like... He's like the grandfather of horror these days, you know? He's the he's the icon, the one that everyone looks up to. Um he's uh he, a few years ago and I think he still sometimes does this. He was touring the country just playing his old horror scores with a band <laughs> which what, like, I've like so a rock mad band or like yeah. a Yeah, That's yeah, awesome. like a, a live rock band. Like uh, him and I think his son is in it and like a bunch of other people. He was just playing like he he never done live music before this, but he also wrote all the scores, so he's at least a competent mu- musician apparently. Um, but like from what I've heard, this is a pretty awesome tour. I really wish I gotten to go. Um, but yeah, he he's an interesting guy. Uh, he he definitely brought a lot to this movie. Um, so just to basically sum up what happens in these two movies, because they are very much part of the same story, not even like usual. Obviously, any sequel is going to follow fairly closely from the original. But these two movies take place on the same night. Uh, and part two is basically just a continuation of the events of that night. Right. So really... All that these two movies are about is um, an escaped mental patient who um, 13 years before killed his sister on Halloween night um, and he escapes the 13 years later uh, to murder again on Halloween night, stalking a bunch of people uh, and specifically trying to kill Laurie Strode. Um, to not so much success but he, <laughs> um uh mostly kills a bunch of her friends and uh various other people around the town of haddonfield illinois um and yeah that's about it that is it that's it's a very actually a very simple plot you do meanwhile in the background have the plot of a psychiatrist trying to chase him down the whole time um yes. and this therapist is like i don't know there's a lot of lore about this psychiatrist out there and like he becomes a very prominent character and he is like full bat shit. I gotta say like <laughs> this guy is insane. Yeah. Dr. Loomis is pretty on edge. I, I think it, it, it's interesting actually. Like I, I always like, I remembered in my mind that he gets a little crazy, um, especially over the course of the two movies here. But like when I was rewatching it for this, 
I was struck like right away by just how on edge he is the entire time. He's like full on waving a gun around a lot of the time. He's like shoot, uh, about to shoot like random people on the street. Um, if we talk about <laughs> Halloween 2, he actively causes the death of somebody who may or may not have been Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, yeah, yeah. That was not so good. So... Yeah, Dr. Loomis is a bit of a morally ambiguous character. He's obviously trying to stop the evil that is Michael Myers. He knows that his patient is extremely dangerous. Um, and one thing that he keeps trying to convince everyone of is he's basically, he's not human. He's a monster, is what he right. keeps saying. Right. Um, so he wants everyone to know that there is no good left in Michael Myers. There's no chance for rehabilitation or anything. Yeah. Which is, you know, a great thing for a psychiatrist to be telling everyone. But <laughs> to be fair, it seems to be pretty true given what we see in these movies. Well, um, that's also like the plot of, I mean, the whole point of this, of Halloween one and uh, is like, like this story about like fate and like, it's very much, you know, in the argument about nature versus nurture, Halloween is firmly on side nature. It like, oh, yeah. doesn't doesn't fucking matter how you're brought up. It's just if you're born evil, you're stuck that way. Right. Yeah. Um I that that theme of fate is like really big, especially in the first movie. Um it's sort of introduced in that that scene where Laurie is sitting in their classroom. Um, just sort of like gazing out the window and but there's this lecture going on at the same time about the nature of fate and inevitability um and that sort of does uh tie into michael myers and like how he was made evil like it, it or whether he was born evil and basically the the thesis of this film is like that he that, that no nothing could have stopped him from being evil really he's just a, a natural force of evil and as we see in the movie he does have like an inevitability about like his very actions he he sort of moves with this presence that is unstoppable and with one mission in mind just to kill everyone in sight I think that's right. I think there is like uh, there is something about his presence that does feel just sort of like almost predetermined and like fate in everything he does. It's sort of like slow. He doesn't, you know, he's not like your Jason Voorhees who runs after people. He's not your Freddy Krueger who like is sort of just like bouncing around, like slashing. He's just sort of like he walks and he's going to follow you and he's going to get there and he's going to kill you. Um, so there is like this weird, like predestined feel to all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely saw um we would later see some influence of this uh this style of a faceless, inevitable, um unstoppable killer um with the Friday the thirteenth movies. Um they um Jason definitely takes on a lot of those characteristics as well. Yeah, Jason's a little different, um, I mean, we can talk about Jason in another episode, maybe someday. Um, yeah. But Jason is more like like a blank canvas in a lot of ways. Like he just like doesn't he. There's so much that can be thrown at Jason, and it changes from movie to movie in such a big way. Um, I think Michael Myers is more like 
not so much a blank canvas, but like he is just like this big immovable the the immovable private presence of like fate and like in the inevitable inevitability of the future. Trying to talk with a cold is like the worst fucking thing. Um, <laughs> so you're doing great. You're you're hanging in there. <laughs> But the inevitability of just the future. And I think that uh, what Michael Myers represents, specifically in the first movie, um, is really characterized to me just in the way that we have the way that Laurie Strode's character is presented. She has all of, first of all, I don't know why she hangs out with the friends she hangs out with. She like, it's like, she has the worst friends, babysitter, Girl Scout. And she's hanging out with these girls who just like want to go smoke pot and have sex in the homes of the parents of the kids that their friends are babysitting like it's not even like i gotta say one girl wants to go hook up in the home that her friend is supposed to be babysitting in and isn't even babysitting in so it's like <laughs> i don't know what the fuck is wrong with any of you people but like Lori strode like has no business fitting in with these people but i think that what really gets to me is that we spend a lot of time um where they are boy crazy, these other girls, and Laurie Strode isn't really, but we find out that Laurie Strode does like this one boy, and we find this out while she's, like, smoking in the car in this really weird, actually very beautifully lit scene uh, as they're driving down the street at sunset. Um, It's a very odd scene in a horror movie. And so um, we find out that she likes this boy, and later on her friend calls and says, well, what would you say if I said I told you I called that boy and, you know, told him that you liked him? And she gets so upset even though this other girl is like well he said he liked you too she's like oh no i couldn't talk to him i couldn't do that i couldn't face him why would you do that you shouldn't have done that you have to call him and tell him that it wasn't true and i think that to me what that uh has always said is that she has this like fear of like just like loss of control she wants to be in control of this situation she doesn't want this boy to know she doesn't want anything that she isn't planning and these other girls took that out of her hands and michael myers sort of represents that in the same way too because he is fate that she doesn't want like interesting but he is like inevitable in her future no matter what she does and i think that that's something that we can sort of trace as an arc throughout the entire franchise if we wanted to um especially with laurie strode's character and even getting to like the the most recent remake reimagining whatever you want to call it um so I think that that's sort of what he represents for her here, and I, which is why I think that this movie is so powerful and still remains such like an iconic thing. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's interesting how you, you connected that to her behavior as well. Um, yeah, she seems um, for the most of the movie to be very straight laced, uh, mostly concerned with school and stuff like that, and she she's very determined and planned out uh in all her actions and uh when michael shows up it sort of like throws everything into chaos she's trying to uh to trying to fend him off through all these different means and yet he keeps coming and coming um sort of yeah just taking the control out of her hands right that's like sort of just like his thing here it's like there's no way she could be in control. And I mean, even in the end, like she keeps thinking she's killed him and it doesn't work. Like, like every time she thinks she's like found some way to stop the situation and put, put an end to it, she can't. Um, and I think that um, the sequel sort of undoes a lot of like this thematic purpose. So I'm mainly talking about the first one, but <laughs> um, the first one I think really drives home this idea that like fate is inevitable and like even if you don't want it it's coming for you and like that's like the horror of michael myers is like like there is like 
violence in everybody's future essentially and it's going to come whether or not you want it and laurie strode faces that in the worst possible way right yeah it's it's about fate but it's also about like the inevitability of death and um even the inevitability of evil in the world um there's definitely a lot of lines in this movie that sort of um draw attention to the fact that yes like michael myers is very evil he's causing death and destruction but it's not just him like that there's things that happen like this all over um one line that stood out to me was uh in that scene in the graveyard where um they're uh the the headstones have been dug up the headstone of uh michael's sister and um the graveyard overseer is saying uh every town has something like this happen and he starts telling some sort of gruesome story about um like a family murder that happened oh, in another yeah. town and it's just this idea that like there's there's violent stuff like this that happens in little towns all over the world all over the country wherever um it's this stuff's inevitable right like yeah like no matter what these these sorts of things are happening and i think that's also just to jump forward ahead to the the sequel a little bit um that sort of like brought up a little bit in the sequel i think it represents something else in the sequel too but uh there's a scene where a kid randomly for some reason has eaten candy with a razor in his mouth like and that scene we can talk about at at length at another time because there's a whole lot of questions surrounding that but i think it is just sort of like this like a side where it's like there's all sorts of like violence happening even if we don't always see it uh, and i think that's one just like another example of this movie saying that like that is something that's out there no matter what you do no matter how safe you try to be this is coming for you um so yeah which is not like, the most comforting message <laughs> it's it's very similar to the film uh final destination and the sequels there just about the inevitability of death and fate it's uh right it, it resonates on a very primal level because it's what we're all afraid of right um so why don't we talk about some of the specific kills in this movie because that's uh you know that's what's most visceral and most appealing about these kind of movies definitely yeah sure yeah yeah um so uh the one that i always find the most memorable um is that scene where he uh like you said the the friend of Lori's shows up at the house where some, her other friend's supposed to be babysitting and nobody's there because Michael's already killed her. <laughs> and, um, and so she and her boyfriend are like coming to the house start having sex. And then the boyfriend goes down to the kitchen and gets killed by Michael Myers. And then Michael comes back into the room wearing like this sheet over him like a ghost and wearing the boyfriend's glasses <laughs> oh yes that yeah that's such a spooky image right there of him like walking in like that yeah you with the glasses it's really spooky. Yeah. you don't even see like the classic mask and everything but obviously you know he's under there and right because we've already seen the boyfriend die we know yeah and because he's disguised the girlfriend doesn't know that uh he's coming and you just see him like just slowly move and you can like you can even recognize his movements underneath the sheet i think like his the way he moves is just so deliberate and practiced uh it's it's like instantly recognizable 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, actually a really good point. Nick Castle, who plays uh, what was in this movie just known as The Shape um, for a lot of it, uh, he really perfected that movement. You can really see it underneath the the sheet there. It's almost to the point where you're you're wondering why this girl can't see it herself. You know, you're like, why can't you see what's going on? We can. We can all tell. Um, <clears throat> right. It's like your boyfriend is not right, honey. <laughs> Something is wrong here. <laughs> Something is not right. It's also like, why would he do that? Like, this is weird. Like, <laughs> yeah. do you really think your boyfriend came up in a sheet with his glasses over the sheet? Like, <laughs> oh, um, no. okay. Um, but she she really does think it. Uh, and it, I mean, it's creepy though. It it really it's very effective. It's I don't know. It's weird. And you see it all happening while she's like on the phone with Lori too. She's called Lori like trying to get help or something and all Lori can hear is, "Oh what? This is is this your famous choking now?" Um, yeah. He's like strangling her while she's on the phone. It's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, your famous choking noises again. Real funny." <laughs> yeah. Um so I mean it's it's pretty tragic. She almost almost makes it uh but she does she does not oh she does not no but that is a good scene i would say that's probably my favorite i mean kill sequence in the in the first one too i feel like that's probably like the most iconic one just because of the sheet it really works it's effective yeah um there's also the scene where he strangles the other friend in the car um that one like that one just seemed like really brutal like it seemed like it went on for a while well, she like fights hard. She she really does not want to die here, um, which you know, fair. And so, she's like putting up a struggle. But yeah, he it is brutal. I mean, he's he's actually pretty good at the strength. I don't know. He strangles a lot of people. He's like known for carrying his big knife, but he in this first movie he spends most of his time just strangling people. Yeah, there's there's a lot of strangling in this one, and to a lesser extent in the second movie. Um, <laughs> He just sort of works with whatever's around him. That's his thing. Like, obviously, most horror icons have, like, their signature weapon. Jason has his machete. Uh, Freddy has his finger knives. For Michael, the iconic weapon is, like, the knife. But he doesn't always use a knife or even, like, seem to really prefer it. He just works with whatever's nearby. Right. You can see him like in some scenes just pick up a knife because it's nearby or pick up a hammer or a length of wire, whatever's just near there. He's just working with what's available. Right. Just whatever's around, whatever he can use. Um, resourceful. At least you can say that yeah. about him. Yeah. If nothing he's else. He's a real go-getter. <laughs> Talking about like the early parts of this movie, um, I thought it was really good the way we built like you built up to him actually killing people. Um, Cause even like even the stuff that takes place during the daytime is still like really creepy. You see a lot of Michael walking around doing various things. And you also hear about stuff that he's obviously done. Like obviously he was the one who dug up the headstone. Um, right. You hear about a theft from a hardware store where a mask and some knives were stolen. Like, Oh, I wonder who that was. Um, <laughs> But like, also, there's a lot of stalking that takes place. He's stalking Lori, um, driving around in the car that he stole from Dr. Loomis when he broke out. And um, 
like those scenes are like genuinely very creepy, even though they're taking place in broad daylight um, in like a very sunny, pleasant looking suburb. Uh, he's still like a menace, even in the daylight. Yeah, I think uh, it does a really, really great job of setting this thing up. I think uh, so. A lot of what's interesting about that to me is that, yeah, I think that he starts following Lori and it's almost like there's this like this question of just like why why her why did it have to be that this girl on this night and i i mean it's just because she happened to be the girl who walked up to the myers house to drop the key off so that her dad could show it you know yeah Um, because her dad is a real estate agent for anyone who is unaware and so i think that um in a lot of ways that i mean even that just goes back to the the theme of fate like uh, it had to be her because her dad was a real estate agent who was going to be selling that house on the night that he happened to be breaking out of the mental asylum like like yeah that's just the way it is and so all um, just by chance right and so um i mean what we say by chance this movie is presenting is not by chance i would say right i think the the movie leans heavily into the idea of fate and um while that may or may not be something we all agree with um i think the movie does seem to think that it's there uh and so i think that that's sort of like that's why i mean and so i think that from there it's sort of like it's like this like weird like almost cat and mouse but in broad daylight he's he's following her around the suburb he follows the kid that she's gonna babysit later uh we see him it like find the little boy tommy doyle outside of his school after he's been picked on by bullies um (laughs) you know and it does it does a really good job of making this like little suburb look like this like it turns this suburb into like a labyrinth like of hell like everything like you can't tell where you are at any given time because they turn corners the way the tracking is shot you don't really know how far they are from the school once they walk home from school but you know they walk so you know it can't be that far but then they've turned so many corners and you've seen michael myers in multiple different shots so you can't tell how far they've gone how he's gotten circled back around to find them again like um it's very strange but it's very unsettling and very effective yeah i think this is as good a time as any to mention um like the camera work and the shot framing in this movie um, which I think is one of the biggest strengths and what makes it such a enduring classic. Um, there's a lot of the work with the camera in here that's used to show stalking and like following someone. Uh, the camera's always investigating, always moving, following people. Um, so the first scene that we get in this movie is... Um, the a flashback to or really it's just where it starts uh in the 60s where we see uh michael kill his sister um which was the incident that got him put in the mental asylum and (laughs) um this whole scene is just one long steady cam shot and um for the time also this was very innovative this was like one of the first uh uses of a steady cam in a feature film um and it's it's a really incredible scene um just following uh the like the sister and her boyfriend through the house stalking like from the point of view of michael and you don't get to see who he is and the fact that he's like an eight-year-old boy until the very end of the scene when the camera switches to a reverse shot and pans back showing that he's just this kid wearing a mask and a clown outfit. 
um oh cl- killer clowns again Ugh. always <laughs> more really killer clowns it. yeah um but like the the way the scene is shot is like really creepy getting to see it right from michael's point of view and um that really sets the tone for the rest of the movie there are other pov shots from michael as well later in the movie but even when it's not like one of those point of view steadicam shots there's a lot of uh shots that just follow the characters as they're walking down like long stretches of these suburban roads um walking around various places the camera moves so much and it's always following these characters in like a stalking fashion you get this real sense of voyeurism and stalking through that camera movement I think that's right. I think it does a really good job of um, it makes you I mean, it, it leaves you unsettled because it it sort of gives you that sensation of being watched by virtue of your feeling like you're watching them the whole time. And like sometimes you feel like you shouldn't be watching them, um, you know, like like that moment I talked about earlier when they when um, Laurie and is it Annie she's in the car with who who's they're smoking. I can't remember the names of her two friends. I get them mixed up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was Annie because they okay. just come back from meeting her dad who's the sheriff yeah and so um yes you're right and so um they're they are driving home and like it's sort of like there are parts where it's like sort of framed from the back seat of the car you can see the light filtering in and it has this like hazy quality to it and it it, they're talking about these things and the voices kind of drop quiet and it kind of feels like you shouldn't be listening in but you are and you are there and i think the movie does a really good job of making you feel like you're sort of intruding at times and you are violating them somehow by like following them. And I think that that leaves you feeling unsettled, which just sets you up for all of the horror that's about to happen, um, which is great. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely just just love everything about the way they put together the cinematography in this movie. It's just it feels so well thought out and like just every everything has a meaning and a purpose yeah um which is great for a horror movie like you don't always get that you don't i mean yeah as someone who loves horror you don't always get that exactly you absolutely don't i mean i would argue that yeah everything does have a meaning and a purpose here i would argue that this is basically the perfect horror film like everything about it is good like there's nothing bad about this movie which is crazy like (laughs) it's nuts how good this movie is Uh, sometimes when i rewatch it i like like lose my mind slowly i'm like what the fuck um, somebody so, made this uh, in 1978 like um, right yeah I, I i mean I, I love it it's so like that's why i think it's so groundbreaking like just all the attention paid to detail in here and even like the just the title sequence which is iconic in its own right is just so well thought out and like sets the tone for the rest of the movie so well it's just that the the text Halloween right next to a flickering jack-o'-lantern that slowly zooms in as the names of the cast are displayed. Um, yeah, it's it's really spooky and a lot of fun. It works. Um, yeah. yeah. It's so good. And, and we get to see in the later installments of this franchise different variations on that idea. Um, but... You know, like they got it right the first time. They figured out something cool to do with the title sequence. And then they were able to do different stuff um, based off of that first idea. Right. We we, we got to talk about the music for a little while. That's like the, the other one big thing that I think of when I think of uh, Halloween. 
besides the camera work is the music. Um, it's so perfectly suited again to the moves that they're trying to set. It's very sparse. Um, so like the, the theme that plays when Michael is attacking or specifically like when he's, uh, coming back after having been beaten back a little bit, uh, is basically just like one piano just playing like chords again and again. Yeah. I mean, yeah every i mean every piece of score that you can think of from halloween and if if you're at all a horror fan i'm sure you can think of at least like three major segments of score from halloween um and those are like michael's back the main halloween theme and then laurie's theme i think everybody knows all of those um and like they're all so simple like (laughs) yeah that's like the beauty of it like they're simple but so like effective and ominous like really creepy and like I mean, of course, the main Halloween theme is great and feels like what an anxiety attack like feels like. Um, like, <laughs> but like, yeah. yeah, I think that that theme of like Michael like coming back, like when you you're watching a character run away and you just hear the like, the, like three chords or whatever that they play, it's like thudding, thudding yeah. piano sounds. It is thudding. It's like it's sort of like loud steps on like a creaky hallway. Like it's like he's coming for you. Like, yeah. and it's frightening. <laughs> Yeah, and all the music is basically either done like with one piano like that or with some light synths, um, but it's all very sparse. I I think of this movie um, as like the punk rock of horror movies at the time, like largely because of that. It's so raw and stripped down. It's just got the basic elements, very simple music, just a, a killer endlessly pursuing his victims with like bare, pretty much a faceless killer you know not a lot of detail that it's just like simple and what works yes no i think you're right i'm just thinking about how crazy like like it is sort of like the punk rock of of horror at that time but it also was like it was just like brand new like <laughs> this wasn't being done you know in the same yeah. way which is nuts to think about um yeah. Uh, but wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I love the music. I think uh, my favorite, my favorite theme, even though like the main Halloween theme is everybody's favorite is Laurie's theme. I think it's great. I think everything about it is perfect. I think it's very like spooky, like that weird, like high pitch, like back and forth between those two notes over and over. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's great. I love Laurie's theme. That's like, I put that on all of my October playlists. I get very excited every time I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> the the halloween music um it's it's great even for listening to on its own i think um it's it just sets the mood so perfectly another reason why i really wish i'd gone to that john carpenter tour i really hope he does that again because did he so like i want to know what kind of like venues he played at like are we talking like the 930 club are we talking um like- I think he played at the lincoln theater when he came to dc so it's like it's a seated venue, but they do get like rock bands and stuff there. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it's a decent size venue too. Okay. It's probably like a little bigger than the Nine Thirty Club. I would have loved to see him in like 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 clubs, just like yeah. <laughs> like club or John Carpenter doing some some takes on some of his 
his compositions. That'd I could have great. seen him playing the black cat. That would have been really cool. <laughs> um, that'd have been so fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're <clears throat> John Carpenter, please do another tour. We're all waiting for you. John Carpenter, um, go on tour challenge. John Carpenter, come on the pod challenge. <laughs> oh, absolutely. John Carpenter's like in his 70s too, and he's still going strong. John Carpenter's the man. Absolutely. He's awesome. Um, so we, we've talked a bit about Michael. There's not really that much to say about him. We know his backstory. We know his general behavior. That's really about it. And that is the um, beauty of him, of Michael. Yeah. 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 Simplicity. Um, just representing the basic themes that he needs to. And of course that changes slightly, even with Halloween too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all all of these all these installments have their own take on Michael Myers. Um, some more effective than others, but at least for now, pretty straightforward in terms of what Michael is and does and represents. Um, let's talk a bit about Doctor Loomis because yes. he he is basically set up as at least from the beginning as the foil to Michael Myers. He's in charge of Michael. He feels responsibility for him having gotten out. And he feels that he it is his responsibility to let everyone know how dangerous Michael can be. So um, the like the way he is characterized, I think, is someone who's he's smart. He's very well. He has good reasons for believing and behaving the way he does, but he's also very on edge and rapidly um, letting the situation get the better of him throughout the movie. I just think Dr. Loomis like could start a cult. Like he like would, and he just thinks <laughs> that it's like the most normal thing in the entire world. And like, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that like, he definitely has every reason to believe <clears throat> that doctor that uh michael myers is evil but he is like fully nuts about it in like the worst possible way i guess i'm just also thinking about this in terms of like he goes to this town of haddonfield illinois and he's like oh by the way let's not tell anyone that this escaped murderer who is definitely coming back to town <laughs> yeah is coming back to town because everyone will just panic and run away which is like the lamest shit i've ever heard it's like this guy is coming here like I mean, you know it. I know it. They all know it. This guy is going to come back and he's going to go to his old house and then he's going to murder anybody who's within a four block radius of that old house. So, yeah, uh, I don't know why why he thinks that the best way of approaching this is to keep it quiet. It's like everybody's going to panic like, well, I mean, maybe they should. Everybody's going to see him on every street corner. Well, that's better than everybody thinking he's just some guy in a mask until they get their throat slashed. Yeah, like better to have some false positives when you're trying to track him down than to have people like leaving their doors unlocked at night while he's roaming around. Which let's be clear, that's a thing that people did in 1978. Yeah. In uh, small town Illinois. People definitely do it in this movie. Yeah, Most they sure do. <laughs> um yeah. So that's not great. Um also he is clearly like on the very edge of his nerves <clears throat> yeah, he might be having a nervous here. breakdown <laughs> um there he's got 
he's got a gun on him and he's behaving the entire time like he's the police or something that he should have this gun and that he should be like using it in this capacity um there's that no. scene where he and the police officer go to the old Myers house um to check it out to like because they think that michael might be hiding there they find out he indeed was at least at some point hiding there um and they hear a noise and he just like instantly draws the gun and it's like pointing it around like jesus christ dude like you're gonna shoot somebody's head off yeah well dr loomis has a strong case in favor of gun control laws becoming a lot tighter really Um, (laughs) i don't know like maybe in the 70s that was like normal like to just be waving a gun around it's just like okay yeah that's like the most horrifying thought i could possibly have (laughs) Like, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that Dr. Loomis is, like, sort of, like, at wit's end for a lot of this. I think he's, like, we don't really have much to go on in terms of, like, what he was, like, before Michael gets out. Because we basically meet him the night Michael gets out, right? Yeah. And, um, We meet him. It's a dark and stormy night because that's how horror happens. And he's heading to the asylum with his, like, assistant, I guess. I don't really know what she's doing. She's, like, a nurse. She's a and, nurse. Uh, she's there to administer the tranquilizer to Michael so they can safely transport him for his court date. Right. And he like, he's basically acting as though he's already sure that something's going to go terribly wrong. Like, like from the beginning, he's like, this, <laughs> like this, something is wrong. This man is evil. Like blah, 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 blah. And then they get to the asylum and there's just it's inmates chaos. wandering around the yard in the rain <laughs> that scene is so spooky too when they like first come around the corner and you see like the the white outfits of the inmates like just dancing in the distance in the dark it's like oh boy this is right. not gonna be good and now this like this concept has now since been like redone in like a thousand horror movies like escaped mental asylum patients like is now like just like a trope in horror movies um but this movie did it really well and like yeah it works um and it's it's very spooky they're all just sort of like standing around like you don't know what's going on they start crawling across the car like (laughs) um it's very upsetting yeah meanwhile dr loomis is just sort of like i like when dr loomis like gets out and he's like i'm gonna go to the gate and he leaves the nurse and then the nurse gets attacked by who we assume is michael myers later on because he takes the car and drives away after she crawls out um and he's <laughs> he just like runs up to her he's like what happened he got away he's escaped <laughs> like <laughs> calm down dude like <laughs> i mean go after him like he's been gone for all of 30 seconds so pretty sure we can all catch him but he doesn't he just sits there dr loomis is like zero to 60 at all times like in like 0.5 seconds like like he'll be like standing there and nothing's happening and then like two like less than a second later he's like screaming into the wind like and everybody's like dude nobody knows what you're talking about you're talking about like evil and fate and whatever else is going on in the world and we don't get it so yeah he's he's got some great lines though (laughs) like talking about how evil michael is and stuff and be like i i spent the first five years trying to figure him out in the la- next seven years trying to keep him away from everyone else like and 
obviously he keeps saying like he's not a man he's a monster multiple times um yeah but like i he's a, he's a really interesting fun character i think donald pleasance's performance uh, is great he's great fantastic definitely one of the highlights of this movie uh yeah he's 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 a lot of fun um obviously the other big character in this movie is laurie strode yes played by jamie lee curtis um yes absolute horror icon this this movie like absolutely cemented her as a horror icon even though like it's been a while now since she did horror um her returning in halloween 2018 was quite the comeback that's Um, true it was yeah but um yeah no this this definitely gave her a status in the horror community and allowed her to do many more horror films after this laurie strode (laughs) is um she is like one of the prototypical final girls in um like what's become like an established trope in horror films but I'd say she is not just one of she is the prototypical yeah. okay yeah I, I think so yeah um but like i find it so there's a lot of assumptions about that sort of came especially around the time that like scream came out and we were getting all like analytical about horror films sure that, yeah um, yeah there were a lot of assumptions made about like what you have to do to be the final girl. Like absolutely. You have, you have to be a virgin. You can't have sex. You can't do drugs, stuff like that. Um, I mean, like, yes. Um, Lori Strode, we think is probably a virgin here. Um, but she does. First of all, she does do drugs in this movie. She does. Uh, <laughs> she's not super into it, but she does. Um, but she doesn't but I, act like it's wrong. Yeah, it's very, exactly. That's very clear. Like she's not like a prude, and I don't think that she's necessarily portrayed as being like virginal as like a sign of purity or anything like that. It's just it's more a factor of her character. Like she's sort of a tight knit person. She's very focused on school. She's not as um, as wild as some of her friends are. And she's generally like kind of a determined uh, close to the chest type person. Even when we, we do know that she has a crush on someone here, but she's uh, very, uh, very lax about letting anyone know about that or especially the person that she has a crush on. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think a lot of that goes back to just like, her issues with like control she like wants to like she focuses on school and stuff like that because those are things that like a human can easily just control they can they can study hard and get good grades and there's no like interference that's going to happen there things like feelings for boys like it doesn't matter what you do if a boy doesn't like you they they don't like you back you know like like feelings are messy feelings are complicated and you don't want to get involved in that if you're somebody who likes to be like fully in control of situations which I think is what Laurie's about. I don't think it's about like some weird like virtue signal moral stance on like purity or like drugs or anything like that. Um, like I yeah. think it's just like she's like I don't want to get involved in that sort of thing because like that's like a way to not having control of who I am and what I do. Like you know, and you can sort of see that in like the way that the other characters are juxtaposed against her. Like um, you have her friend Annie who like 
you know is babysitting on the same night but is like trying to like find time to go get to go sleep with this other guy and like she like spills butter on herself and so she has to change her clothes because that's like a mess and like she gets locked into this other room and stuff like that and she's just like a completely different character than Lori who would never do anything like that like the idea of Lori like spilling butter on herself because she was popping popcorn or something on the stove while thinking about going to have sex with the boys like something that just like <laughs> does not happen yeah like that's not her that's just like this other world that she doesn't inhabit and so i think that like she has like sort of like trained her world to be something that's only things that she can fully control right and i do think that Lori being such a like a determined organized person is what ends up allowing her to survive when michael is coming after her like you can see um in the scenes when like she after running into the house and locking the door she like immediately is telling the kids what to do like to go upstairs and to hide and like she knows what to do even though it's, like she's clearly very scared and worried like she has a plan she like it has uh like first of all she's thinking about keeping the kids safe but she also has a plan for fighting back against michael um so some of her plans aren't necessarily that great like when she locks herself <laughs> in the closet but at least like she's thinking things through she's not like panicking she's under a lot of pressure but she's actually like trying to figure a way out for herself i think that's right i think she always has a plan um uh, a key part of that is when she like has both kids that she's trying to babysit and she's like she's like okay so what's next and they're like oh we can make more popcorn and she's like no and they're like oh we can watch the rest of the movie and they're like no and she's like she's like okay why don't we go carve more pumpkins and it's like you clearly knew what we were gonna do next like <laughs> why did you even ask them like you knew you shot down both of their ideas after you asked them like yep. you already knew what was next and i think that that's sort of just like Lori's mo at all times she always knows what's coming next and so like as a result, since she always has a plan, she knows how to handle situations like Michael Myers unexpectedly showing up uh, better than some characters who sort of aren't planning that far ahead, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, and the other the other teens in the movie, obviously, we'd see some stuff in other horror movies later, and this was reflected in the Scream generation as well. That was like seen as being like sort of a moral punishment for you know drinking doing drugs having sex that you get killed by the killer here but i don't in, in this one it just seems like they're just teens being teens they're yeah, it it never feels to me like it's meant to be representative of a punishment or a moral passing on any of these yeah. characters they're shown doing this stuff because that's what teenagers do and they're, they're showing teenagers on halloween night which is a time teenagers like to go crazy and have fun i mean realistically if anyone's the abnormal one who's like doing something that's out of the norm it's it's laurie like <laughs> like you know the others are just being teenagers i think that um i think and i think the movie i never because like this is like you know held up as a prototypical slasher and slashers have come to like say you know like if you have sex you're gonna die and like I, th I don't think halloween would agree with that i don't think halloween would ever agree with that that stance yeah no i think, I, I, think I, do, something I think it presents like the death of these like other kids who like engage in like sex and drinking as like not you know you're not supposed to like really take joy in it <laughs> like yeah this isn't one of those horror movies where like you watch the kills and you like 
or sort of like, ooh, yeah. Like you're sort of like, ooh, that's upsetting. Like, right? Because like know. sometimes, sometimes it's like the killers killing the bullies, or they're killing like somebody who was a jerk earlier, or just someone who's annoying. But like, I mean, all the characters here are just pretty normal people. Nobody's right, exactly. like a real asshole. They're just, you know, Lori's friends. Yeah. That's it. Is there anything else you want to focus on in this one before we move on to part two? Not really. No, nothing that, um, no, no. Anything else I'd want to say is like in comparison to part two. So I'd rather move on to part two. Okay. So at the end of the movie, just to see where our midpoint is, um, Dr. Loomis runs into the house where Lori is and Michael is shoots Michael six times with his <laughs> gun that's always present. The six um, is important. <laughs> yes, yeah, six times. And then Michael falls out of the window and lands in the front yard, uh, apparently dead. They look at him. He seems, for all intents and purposes, to be dead. He's been shot six times and fell out of the window. So the reasonable assumption is that he is dead. Dr. Loomis goes to comfort Lori and um, she says, what's the boogeyman? Which is a callback to um, questions that the, like the kid that she was babysitting was asking her earlier. Yeah. Tommy and Lindsay. And it's important to remember those names. (laughs) Yeah. Tommy was asking her about the boogeyman because he'd been, like some bullies earlier were teasing him and saying the boogeyman was going to get him. Um, and it, it does appear that Michael in this movie is in fact the boogeyman. Uh, and indeed Dr. Loomis says back to her, I think that was him. Yes. That's a good moment. That's a really good moment. He, and, she says it was the boogeyman. He says, as a matter of fact, I think it was. Yeah. And then they they look out the window and Michael's gone. Yes. Apparently he has run off. And that's the end of Halloween. Um, and part two uh, basically starts with that entire scene shown over again. You get to see him, sh- Michael Myers shot again. You get to see all those lions again. Uh, and once again... Michael's missing. And that's where we pick up with part two. Yes, it's the exact same thing. Part two gets off to kind of a chaotic start. Um, because obviously Michael's already killed a bunch of people, and um now he's been shot six times with fall out of a window and he's missing. So if you thought Dr. Loomis was on edge before, he's <laughs> he's really concerned now. He's telling like anyone who will listen that he shot Michael six times, like, six times, six times. And the other cops are like, oh, you shot him six times and he he's still gone. Are you sure you shot him? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I shot him six times. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hit him all the times? Like, uh, oh, where did you like, shoot no, him? Was it like, no. like his, his pinky finger? Is <laughs> uh, it his hair? I shot What's him six times. I shot him six times and it got up. All right, Dr. Loomis, it's time to consider the reality that he's just not human. Um, But 
yeah so he's he has like a full meltdown to the point where he's willing to like let somebody kill a guy who's just maybe looks like michael myers and walk away from it i mean that is a a thing that happens in this movie a car strikes a man in a jumpsuit and he catches on fire and dies and dr loomis is like okay let's go yeah so that that is a really crazy scene uh that happens early on um and pretty much right away shows you kind of the tone that halloween 2 is going to take um so they're walking around they're still looking looking for michael myers uh and they see somebody who appears to be him he's got the coveralls he's got a mask and they they start running after him and loomis is like waving the gun around as he's he running is, after he's him literally waving it like <laughs> it's insane like you got let the police handle this buddy like just uh don't it's do also, that what's your take on this like it seems pretty clear to me that that's like not michael like that's oh, not yeah. him right? like it's definitely not because i mean that well they show the burned up body later in the movie um and it's pretty clear like he's not he's not coming back from that a and b if he did you would like you would be able to tell that he was all burned up i mean michael comes back from some fucked up things so like yeah but you you'd see like the scorch marks all over and stuff like this guy got really burned up so presumably this is like some other guys wearing a similar costume um which first first of all is a crazy coincidence like not only did he get the same mask but also the the coveralls which are just like some mechanics uniform that michael's wearing the the coveralls are the crazy part because i think the mask in the first movie was meant to be like just like this mask he stole from the store right yeah like exactly he stole it and like there's this whole moment where laurie rips off the mask and like that's when he's vulnerable long enough to get shot um and like i think that's supposed to be key because there's something about like the selfhood and michael doesn't want his selfhood to be shown because he just wants to be like this representation representation of fate blah 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 um whole other thing and so like i think that like here they sort of undo some of that by like having somebody else in the mask wander around but at the same time i think it also sort of just like drives home this like it sort of expands like the idea of fate into like it could have been anyone but it had to be michael in that mask you know um so i don't know it's interesting this whole the whole the opening to this movie is interesting because it sets up a lot of arcs that don't really go anywhere like there's a lot of right. stuff that starts happening and then the movie doesn't do anything with them. Like you have this plot of them like accidentally killing another person in a Michael Myers mask. What what's the point? Is there a point? I don't know. You have this kid who eats candy that has a razor blade in it. That literally serves no purpose. Nothing comes of that plot. There is like they could have excised that and it would have been just 5 minutes taken off the runtime and nobody would have batted an eye. Yeah, like, I think I think that was just like a bit of a bit of color there, just showing like a Halloween urban legend. And so I think part of that comes from like the idea that like, and we'll talk about this more like in later episodes, like this was gonna be like an anthology. Like Halloween was not meant to just follow Michael Myers for 10 movies. Um, it was supposed to be like an anthology where they cover other Halloween urban legends. But yeah. like Which I was think- a great idea, and I wish they'd done it, but beautiful on that later um but it's also like really weird that they chose to leave it in and do nothing with it you have like 
I mean, she sort of like becomes like a character, but she dies very early on. Like the girl who's like partying with her friend at like doing bobbing apples at like a party and then goes to work at the hospital and is sleeping with the older mechanic for some reason. Like, <laughs> like, like that whole plot. And then you have like a love interest for Jamie Lee Curtis for no reason. Like, there's like, there's like a bunch of arcs that are like set up and then just like really weirdly just like hand waved off. Like, right. It's like, yeah. a, it, like, it's part, like, Part of me, like, thinks that, like, it's just, like, Halloween 2 being sloppy. And then the other part of me feels like it's, like, Halloween 2 just sort of, like, sort of, like, setting you up for something and then just, like, ripping it away. Like, like I think I think it's a little bit smarter than some people give it credit for, but still a little bit messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that, so that scene where they have the fake Michael Myers that they're chasing after, um, he runs out into the street and gets hit by a car that crashes into a van or he gets hit by a van that crashed into a police car something like that but anyway he yes. gets pinned between two cars and then it like an <laughs> enormous fireball erupts and yes. sets him on fire pinned uh, between two cars you ever seen signs m night Shyamalan? oh no <laughs> <laughs> which is like this happens in like the first five minutes in the movie or something like that it's just like right away showing you like this is gonna be a much bigger budget movie and they're gonna have like bigger set pieces and stuff like this big yeah explosion like i i can't think of anything even close to that in the first movie and i can't think of any reason they needed to do even remotely close to that in this movie yeah it was not a little sorry it's a little over the top um also early in the movie we have um one of my favorite scenes um which is another like pov michael stalking people shot uh where he's like walking around like he's just escaped from laurie strode's house and he's like walking around searching for a weapon and he comes up to this house where there's an old couple in there and they're like listening to the news and stuff and he steals a knife from uh that the woman was using to chop up some ham (laughs) oh yeah it's a it's a really creepy scene because like um you get all that pov stuff but it'll also cut back to like a regular shot in between that and you can see like inside just like the old couple behaving like normal people. Um, and you can see how they're like, they're missing all this stuff that's going on in the background and that like this murderer is lurking very close to them. And then it'll cut back to the POV and just resume that same shot. I like that scene. And like, there were a couple others with that same format later on. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I also love that scene because I love when she, like, is, like, walking into the living room to, like, ask her husband if, like, she he wants, like, what, like, a bologna sandwich or whatever. Yeah. And then she turns back to, like, the kitchen and sees her knife missing and screams. Like, <laughs> she's yeah. like, do you not think you could have just, like, misplaced the knife? Like, no, you are, like, screaming bloody murder. Because <laughs> Michael's blood is there, too. There is a little bit of blood. That's the thing. That, like, yeah. like you see him drip the blood on there as he goes to take the knife. 
And it's just like very funny. I'm like, I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation. I'm like, I can tell you one thing I wouldn't do. It's just like scream bloody murder. I'd be like, who replaced my knife with some blood? What was that? I'd be like, hmm, maybe that killer that they said was on the loose might be nearby. So I should be the fucking quietest person I know. Um, But, you know, I guess I just, it's a very, it's, it's good though. I think that, um, Mike, it sort of does a good, I like, it sets it up like, so that Michael, like Michael's like return from the dead, which cause like he should have been dead at the last movie. Like he got shot a bunch of times and fell out of a second story window. Yeah. Like landed on his back. He should have been dead from the bullets and then dead from a broken back. Like, (laughs) absolutely yeah like there are multiple reasons he should have been dead and then he just wakes up and like walks into this house takes a knife goes and murders this like young girl like (laughs) like like (laughs) he's like up still got some more murdering to do yep i mean at this point now michael's becoming just like your token slasher right like he's just like i'm just gonna go murder this girl now i'll be back to like my main plot in a second but i've got to kill her now Right. Um, yeah. He just kills this random girl with like no connection to Lori or like the rest of the plot. Just some girl also like just at home on Halloween night. And well, like I do like that scene though, because like she I love that her, scene. I think it's friend, good. her friend calls her and like tells her, like, oh, did you hear? Like all these people were killed. Uh and it happened just down the road. She's like, What? And like turn on the radio, and like you can hear them talking about it on the radio. And then all of a sudden, like, she realizes the door is unlocked and it's not supposed to be. And it's like, oh, oh shit. Like, and then she gets killed. Um, yeah. But it's it's really creepy. Like, you can see her, like, becoming more and more scared, like, really quickly. But it, ha- it all happens so fast. Um, it's really cool. And It does happen so fast. It's so crazy to think about how just, like, different times were. Because, like, that, like, just, like, couldn't happen now. Like, it just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, oh, like for one thing, like everybody would just be texting each other right away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, things things are always uh, things in horror are very much affected by the technology at the time. Yeah. No, so, no, no. Uh, I agree. That's not like a slight. I'm just thinking yeah. like like a very interesting like that's like a key moment where it's like every time I watch it, I'm like that like is not possible now. Like most yeah. of the first movie, I feel like it's still like largely possible because most of them don't know that there's a killer happening like there's no chance that they could have known because michael myers has been hidden this whole time Mm -hmm. like but like by the second movie it's like the police know and everything like that and like they found some of the bodies and this girl is has to find out through a phone call from somebody who found out over the radio like at that point she would have known just via text you know now like it's the second movie where it's really like wow it really has changed like (laughs) There's a lot that happens in this movie because of like lack of communication, which is and, like, maybe why the the first movie on. holds up better than like the second one over time. Like the yeah. first movie, like it still feels like as plausible as anything else. Like, <laughs> no. yeah, well, I, I still think it's interesting to think back on like a time when you wouldn't have had cell phones and the internet readily available and be like, this would have been like a lot creepier and more difficult but yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah yeah. it is like less plausible if you were to set it in a modern right uh modern technology sphere um so most of most of this movie takes place at the hospital um they take lori there after she's had this horrible run-in with michael Mm, um yeah very fair (laughs) 
Um, and uh, so like the entire time she's telling people like not to sedate her because she she wants to be awake because she knows Michael's still out there. Also uh, goes back to the control issue. Yeah, want to. She doesn't want to be in a situation where she can't fight back. Very much so. Yeah. Um, and she she shows up at the hospital and. The doctor, uh, this uh, this is one of my favorite details from this movie. The <laughs> doctor is like really drunk because apparently like he was out at the country club just like partying for Halloween. And then like he got called in for this. So, like, well, like nobody had another doctor on call. Like this is the one doctor who can. I got to say this doctor would have been jigsawed. Like this doctor would have been like. <laughs> I would have been like, fuck that guy. This guy's going in on Saw 3. Like, yeah. um. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you <claim laughs> care for your patients and you regularly show up intoxicated. <laughs> he would have been like in like an Iron Maiden. So like, <laughs> I just think that like, yeah, I think that the weird hospital, I think it's so interesting that this movie suddenly like transfers to a hospital. Like, because the hospital is such a different environment, I think, than the suburbs of the first movie. Um, right. Because the, the suburbs sort of like offer this like, I guess they're sort of similar in some ways, but the suburbs are supposed to offer this like illusion of like, like freedom for an American family, right? Um, they're right. supposed to be like, like somebody can go there and live a nice, peaceful, quiet life. Of course, Michael Myers completely disrupts that. And that's the whole purpose of Michael Myers. The hospital is not a place where anybody expects to feel peace at any time. <laughs> But also a hospital is like a place where you go to get well, not you go there to get murdered. Sure. Yeah. But nobody wants to be in a hospital no matter what. True. True. There's like no, no person who wants that. Also, I think a contrast is um, in the, in the suburb, it's like, there's all these dark spaces. There's like behind bushes and trees where Michael Myers can hide. You don't know what's going on outside your house and like what's hiding in the shadows. Whereas the fear in the hospital comes from the closed in spaces, like the claustrophobia. There's all these winding hallways that are very narrow and you don't know which room Michael's in. You don't know where, like where he's been and you don't know where all your friends are. Like you you haven't heard from anyone in a while. Nobody has cell phones. Um, when well, you they're go- all dead. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they're all dead. For but, for yeah. Lori, they're all dead. Um, There's supposed to be all sorts of people at the hospital, but Michael basically like tracks. Were there her parents one. who are at a Halloween party and can't be reached? Yeah. That's a really <laughs> disturbing turn of events. Um, that's a that's a very 1981 moment right there. Like yeah. <laughs> again, another thing that would not happen with that with cell phones. I don't think that would have even happened in 1981. I feel like because like the news would have broken by then, they would have like figured some things out. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Like yeah. this, this was this was big news. Like several people have been murdered. Yeah, if if it's on the radio, they've heard. Like it's very strange that it, they're like, uh, we can't get in touch with the parents. But I also, I, I don't know, like, there's, like, this weird, like, sense of, like, detachment in this movie. Like, the hospital is weirdly vacant. Like, Lori feels like she's on her own. But, of course, we find out that there's some weird family stuff going on that is separate from all of that. And, like, so I feel like it kind of makes sense that her parents just, like, aren't showing up. Like, 
it's like yeah that seems right like <laughs> um so i don't know it's weird though it's weird yeah yeah so lori doesn't know where her parents are why they haven't come the lori only... honestly doesn't even ask it's just the nurses who talk about it <laughs> yeah yeah lori, lori um lori's only comfort comes from uh this the orderly who was in the ambulance that brought her in who is like really yeah jimmy who's like really flirting with her the whole time they're like he's like sort of a love interest they're getting to know each other here yeah Um, but jimmy like sucks yeah he's not great um can we should we skip his head to just his death scene because i really did not understand this is it really Um, a death scene it's really like hard to know i don't know even um it's so strange um, I don't think he dies. But like then why? Okay, so everybody like basically <laughs> is getting like tracked down and killed in this hospital. Um eventually Lori tries to to run out and like get in one of the cars in the parking lot and drive away because she knows like people are getting killed. And um in the meantime, Jimmy is trying to go out to get in his car to go for help. Um, And so they both end up in the same car. Lori gets in there first and he comes in and he's just like, cause like the only thing that's happened to him at this point is he slipped in a pool of blood and fell. Yeah. And and he comes out, he gets in the car. He's like, it's all going to be okay. And then he just like face plants into the wheel and, and she just like leans his head back against the seat and then gets out of the car. Yeah. He, Cause he's like setting off the horn really loudly, like telegraphing their position and like, yeah, she just leans it back. And then like, that's the last we see of him. Which is like, like one of which is why I said earlier, like, I don't know if the movie like thinks of like, if the movie is like just sloppy or if the movie is just like setting up these like weird red flags and then like ripping them away. Like, like yeah. it like wants you to like invest in the Jimmy plot line and then be like, actually, that's not what's important here and pulls it away. Like, um, I guess. Yeah, I just I I don't know <laughs> if he's dead or not. And I don't even know why he face plants into the wheel. Like, I think it's really- shock. I think so. Like he like saw that nurse like with that, like that IV in her vein and then all of her blood drained onto the floor, which is like IV a pretty, I gotta- my vein. Sorry, do, doing a little saw four song there. I enjoyed um, that. Um, yeah, that's I like that's a pretty brutal way to die. Um, it is. It's a very saw way to die. In fact, it's so uh, saw. It's it is so not Michael Myers. It's so weird. Yeah, uh, like he he had he like took the time to like tie this nurse down and then like put an IV in her and let it slowly drip the blood out until all of her blood was on the floor and she died. Like, Michael doesn't really, like, do it to cause slow pain. Like, there's nothing about, like, he just wants to see life leave people. Like, he doesn't really care about, like, causing them, like, long-term pain. So it's, like, really weird to think about him, like, doing that. He he doesn't, yeah, he's not, he's not even really that much about theatrics or anything. So you can't even make that excuse. He's a very, like, simple, brutal guy. He just, like, takes you out, moves on. Yeah. Um, So that, that was a weird one. Um, another interesting kill he has in the hospital is the one in the hot tub. Um, oh yeah, 
you know, the hot tub in the hospital. Um, <laughs> because why not? That That is a, a crazy scene. So there's like a therapeutic hot tub that one of the nurses and I guess her boyfriend, who's one of the orderlies, go down to. Um, and he goes into the other room to change the temperature. And... <laughs> It's really funny because you can see Michael like pop up and start strangling him in the other room <laughs> while while the camera stays in in that room with the hot tub and you can't hear it, but you can see it. It's just like, <laughs> and he dies. Um, he does. And die. then, <laughs> yep. And then Michael comes in and he's like turned the heat up really high and she's like she thinks it's the boyfriend so she's like getting all touchy-feely with him and then she when she realizes who it is then he just like shoves her face down in the hot tub and like scalds her to death yep pretty much which is a really interesting kill i'd say um another really brutal one and more theatrical than most of what michael ever does very brutal, very creative. Like, I mean, it obviously took him more time to do that than to like strangle her or stab her or something. And, like, and he already just strangled the boyfriend, so right. he could have just done that. But he's he's going for a little more theatrics this time, so we can see changing things up. He clearly likes to like take the opportunity when it's available to him. Yeah, and so that's basically what that whole all the hospital scenes are like. It's just him cornering people and killing them in different unusual ways yeah pretty much he like just like walks around the hospital and everybody runs away and doesn't really get anywhere they all just die (laughs) yeah um we get a lot so something that's fun in both of these movies is uh the movies that you see the characters watching on tv um that this is always a staple in movies that i love to see is like it's a way for the filmmakers to call out movies that they like and movies that they think are related to the one that they're making. Um, In the first one, which is very interesting, we get the thing um, like the original thing, which is funny because John Carpenter would later remake that in the eighties. Right. um, With arguably like definitely, actually definitely the more iconic version of that movie. Definitely. Um, (laughs) And um, in this one, uh, they're watching Night of the Living Dead. Um, we see it on yes. multiple different TVs, which yeah. is great, great call out there. Why don't we get into the lore that's set up in this movie? Oh, um, God. Sort of, sort of like a hint at things to come. Um, this is sort of like almost like the Saw 2 of this franchise, except for like less good. Um. <laughs> So I think that like, okay, so we're going to talk about the lore. I think that I should preface the conversation about the lore with like, I just think like the drop off from Halloween to Halloween 2 is like sharper than the drop off in any other horror franchise. Like, it's just like, it, I just feel like, like, okay, so mm, spoiler alert, the lore here is that Lori is somehow related to Michael. She is his sister. And she was adopted by her actual parents and that was hidden from her. And I think that that's like lame. I think that's really dumb. Yeah, it seemed like so it kind of undermines what we'd seen in the previous movie that like 
it was her fate to be yeah that's like stalked down by michael exactly i think it undermines this idea of the just like this like relentless driving fate thing and like and makes it about like family and these like ties that you have that you, like and like that's not i don't know it's just like far less interesting that way yeah yeah, I don't know, like because it's easier to understand. Like, all right, he killed his one sister; he's going to kill this other one, rather than like sort of a a faceless, unjudging fate that you can't even comprehend. Exactly, yourself. exactly. And so I th- I think it really like just like works to undermine a lot of what the movie set up. And I it doesn't. I mean, and we'll talk about. I, I mean, we'll come back to this point later because later movies retcon certain things and movies make light of this this exact thing. Like, um, but like it, I I don't know. It's just like a weird thing. And like, of course, we're gonna have to sit with it because it is an, a key plot element for a lot of the sequels that come next. But like, right? I it's weird. I don't like it. And I think that it like for a lot of this movie, I really enjoy it. In the moment, like we find that out, and that becomes like the main driving factor. I really it really takes me out of it yeah yeah another weird thing that's set up here is uh that scene where they go to the school which i guess like the only reason there is because they know michael's been there and (laughs) they they find this weird drawing that like i think is supposed to depict the myers family and like the murder that took place in the 60s but it's like (laughs) Did Michael like sit down and draw that while he was there? Right. <laughs> I don't know. And then also Sam Hain is written on the blackboard in blood. Oh yeah, uh, that happens. Which is like now he's leaving messages for people. Right. <laughs> like, that is very out of character from what we saw in the first one. Like he's not he wasn't real, ever trying to tell anyone anything in the first one. Uh, like based um, on his character in the first one, I wouldn't think he's capable of leaving messages for anyone. Yeah. He's like the, his whole character in the first one. And as confirmed by Dr. Loomis is he, he's completely uncommunicative at all times uh, in all ways. So right. it's kind of weird that now he's trying to tell people something. Um, but I think they're, so what they were trying to do here is like do more of what we were talking about with the anthology thing, like tie it into like the spirit of Halloween and whatever. Sam Hain is like an, an old English. I think it's an old English word for Halloween. Okay. Um, I thought it was like Celtic or something. Oh yeah. Celtic Celtic. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Of. Um, Gaelic. It's Gaelic. All right. <laughs> so not only is that, like tied into what they're trying to do here, making an anthology, which later would be aborted. But also like this sort of idea of like the Celts comes back later. Oh, it sure does in like a huge way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I did. I did think that was funny that it showed up this early. I was like, Oh yeah, they actually kind of tie that in later. So sort of, (laughs) sort of, sort of, we'll, we'll get to that in due time. Um, yeah, but, uh, so at the end of this movie, the, um, he, Michael like kills everyone in the hospital. Lori is the only one who survives or maybe the orderly guy who just passed out in his car for some reason. 
I'm pretty um, sure he made it. I mean, there's no reason to think he died. We didn't see it happen. I guess so. Yeah. But so she crawls back into the hospital because Dr. Loomis and like the cop and whatever that he's traveling around with have showed up. And uh, Michael is apparently shot to death again. And this time, this time, uh, Dr. Loomis knows better. He's like, don't touch him. Don't get near him. And the cops just <laughs> like, oh, what? It's fine. He's dead. And Michael just comes up and slits his throat like really yep. quick. That is exactly um, what happens. It's great. So once again, we're left with only Dr. Loomis and Lori and Michael in the hospital. Yes. Um, and they had that interesting scene where they managed to blind Michael by like stabbing him in the eyes. Um, yeah. And he's just sort of like looking around for them with his hands and like listening for them. Um, That's a really weird scene. They like they blind him and then they just like start like firing off these like weird like gas tanks and so like michael doesn't know where they are so he just like starts spinning around the room (laughs) yeah he's just like wildly like slashing around and you can hear the blades swinging through the air you really really audibly um and then uh laurie runs away and dr loomis sets the gas on fire and explodes and they all catch on fire um so (laughs) That's presumably how both Dr. Loomis and Michael die in this movie. Michael does sort of like walk out while on fire. Yes. <laughs> Which is a really creepy, like, oh my God, he's still alive moment. Yes. But then he just yeah. falls down pretty much dead. And this, <laughs> this was then meant to be the end of Michael Myers. Like this was right. it. They were going to move on and do another installment in the uh, in the franchise as like an anthology format with a disconnected story. Um, We'll see in the next one exactly how that played out. Um, But for now, that that was the intent going forward, that this would be the end of Michael Myers. Right. Um, Here's an interesting quote I found about uh, Carpenter's relationship with this movie oh god he he described the writing of the screenplay as as mainly dealt with a lot of beer sitting in front of a typewriter saying what the fuck am i doing i don't know (laughs) so basically i feel like like that yeah that sums it up yeah Yeah, that like carpenter didn't want to make this movie he like basically the studio cajoled him into making a sequel because it was so successful so he made this one somewhat under duress and then wanted to push the franchise into more of an anthology format so he wouldn't have to keep making Michael Myers movies. And uh, that's not really how it turned out. So his involvement in the franchise just kind of decreased after this. But um, it is interesting to see how he ended up following up the events of that night. It is, and I mean, like, ultimately, like, what he did with this movie lays the groundwork for a lot of sequels. Yeah, I mean, like, the this is the the first time that you really get a feel of, oh man, like, Michael's pretty much invincible to a certain extent. Right. Um, 
which will definitely be played off of later on. Um, you get more of the over-the-top kills that you come to expect from a slasher movie. Right. And um, there's there's some other updates as well. Um, the score is different in this one. You get the same themes, but they're like a lot richer, I feel like. They like sure, they really yeah. made them synthier, made them more complex. Um they're at least they're they're doing new stuff with it. They're they're trying to make it a more amped up version of the original, basically. Right. Um also the the opening uh credits, they do the similar to the first one with the the pumpkin and the the text of the movie but then as they move in the pumpkin separates and you see a skull inside you sure do which is it's just another example of them going more over the top in this one they do yeah in being extra gruesome and visceral um yeah Oh, one other thing that I definitely wanted to fit in here is that scene towards the end um, when it's just Michael and Lori running around the hospital. He's chasing her through this storeroom that's like very poorly lit. It oh, really yeah. it reminded me of one of the scenes in Suspiria where like a very similar thing is going on in like a storeroom it's lit very similarly too they've got like the red light from the emergency lights on in there it's got that really um really stark colorful contrast that um you will definitely recognize in argento films um and also it's got like the clattering of like the shelves and everything around which shows up in some of those uh scenes from suspiria as well so i i don't know if there's a real connection there or not but i found it interesting but visually yeah i see it um yeah but that is halloween 2 that is halloween 2 um a more amped up slightly less uh focused version of the first one yeah, I think it's but, a little bit more meandering, but I st- I still think it's worth watching. I think that yeah. a lot of people write off Halloween 2, but it's worth seeing. It's interesting. I think it's interesting for what the movie wanted to sort of do with the direction of this franchise, even if it didn't ultimately go in some of those directions. Yeah. No, it it's it's good to see them like trying out some new ideas at least, you know. They they're they're throwing a lot out there, but some of it's interesting. Um, th- this movie was made for quite a bit more than the original was a uh, budget of 2.5 million. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, it grossed significantly less uh, 25.5 million. Sure did. Yeah, still still a big hit. But uh, compared to the original, uh, quite a drop off. Right. Especially considering they made it for a lot more money. Right. But um, it, it was definitely good enough to merit another sequel and to uh, keep the franchise going. I was going to say, uh, there's a whole <laughs> franchise around it. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, so next week, we will be talking about 
Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Um, One of my personal favorites. It's It's a great one. (laughs) Much maligned among fans of the Halloween franchise, but it's it's having a bit of a revival these days. It has, yeah. It's really a lot of fun. Uh, We're looking forward to talking about it next week. I can't wait. (laughs) It's going to be a good time. Uh, Until next time, um, you can find us on all your major podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all that. Um, you can find us on social media on Twitter uh, at Buzzed On Movies or email us buzzedonmovies at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of uh, Halloween or slasher movies in general. Or it, um, just let us know if you have any other movies you'd like us to talk about. And um, uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, give us a review and rate us on any of those platforms we talked about. Until next time, we will see you at the movies. See you at the movies.